Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Today on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the story of an NFL team long forgotten. In 1952, the NFL thought it would be great to try professional football in the Southwest, Texas, and they placed a team in Dallas. It didn't go very well. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore so much of what went wrong with the NFL's first foray into Texas with a look back at the long-lost history of the Dallas Texans. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello, and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. It's been quite a while since we last got together, and I am so happy to be back and thank all of you who contacted me asking about Sports Forgotten Heroes and if I was ever going to bring the podcast back. Well, Here I am, and I have a terrific lineup of shows coming your way, and with a new wrinkle. Now, you can watch Sports Forgotten Heroes as well. I have created a YouTube channel. I record each interview and add a few enhancements when possible, so you can either listen here, wherever you get your podcasts, or if you choose, you can watch as well. Either way, I thank you for your support. Now, before I jump into today's show, a quick shout out to the Sports History Network, of which Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. As always, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Facebook or X. And if you think about it, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating, and if you can, a nice sentence or two wherever you can leave a review. So today, my guest is Mike Colbert who has finished writing a terrific book on a team, a forgotten team, that I think most of you will be surprised to learn about, the Dallas Texans. Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking about the Kansas City Chiefs when they were in the AFL. They were originally known as the Dallas Texans and played in Dallas in 1960, 61, and 62 before relocating to Kansas City in 1963. But that's not the Dallas Texans we are going to discuss. Nope. The NFL actually put a team in Dallas for the 1952 season. Man, what a disaster. The Texans didn't make it through the season and were actually relocated. Well, sort of, and I'll explain that with Mike on today's show. In fact, Mike's book, Wards of the League, the untold story of the first NFL team in Dallas is fascinating and filled with incredible stories and information, some of which he will share with us. So 
Let's get into all of it now with my guest, Mike Kohler. Hey, Mike, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so happy you could join us. Glad to be here and glad you uh, are representing your Giants there. I say your shirt today. There you go. Hey, so we're talking about a team that most people, most even football fans, don't even know existed. At least they don't think they know existed, right? We're talking about the Dallas Texans. So let me ask you this. When you first heard about the Dallas Texans, were you like most people and thought, oh, yeah, the Kansas City Chiefs? That's exactly what I thought. Uh, Because everyone knew, uh, well, everyone in my age (laughs) bracket, like yours, we knew about the AFL Chiefs and the big battle that we had here. I guess maybe since this team was only around for a short time, one season, um, I didn't really know about it until I was watching an ESPN show in the early 1990s when Jimmy was here rebuilding the Cowboys and we were starting our rise back to prominence. Um, And ESPN, they used to do these NFL films presents, these little features, and they had a little seven-minute episode on the failed – Dallas Texans is kind of whimsical. Um, you can still find it out there on YouTube. Uh, it's a little grainy, but I, you know, I just thought, wow, I had no idea we had another Dallas Texans, and they were actually an NFL team, not an AFL team. So I just started kind of looking around, trying to learn a little bit more, and um, didn't find a whole lot, but over time I did. Well, let me ask you, as we go through today's show, we're going to discuss many of the surprising and crazy facts about this version of the Dallas Texans and their brief existence. But before we get there, what one fact about the Texans' short time in Dallas surprised you the most? You know, it surprised me the most. I think it was just the sheer fact that no one knew about the team. Um, there's all kinds of history buffs, you know, and sports history guys are, they take it to extremes. Um, but the fact that the franchise was here in the city that, as you know, now boasts the most valuable sports franchise in the world, not, not just the league, um, that kind of surprised me that how can we not have anybody here that really knows anything about it? Um, and it, not so much because it was so long ago, because everybody has kids and everybody has history books and links and stuff like that. Um, I found out most of the hidden gems that most people won't know about until hopefully they buy this book um, from Giles Miller, uh, who was the, the primary lead owner. He and his brother, Connell, uh, formed a syndicate with some investors to um, buy another failed NFL franchise out in New York City. And he had written a book. I say that no book has ever been written about the Texans, and I stand by that. But he had written a book that, and this is the book, um, it's a little paperback, um, probably about the size of a greeting card. Hmm. Um, I don't have the book. I borrowed it from uh, Giles' eldest son. Um, 
and there were so many tidbits in there. It was kind of a diary style confessional is, uh, is what he called it. Um, and some of the other family members said, it's a really hard read. And, and it was, um, words were really small paperback. He only was said in the book that he was going to print about 50 of them. I don't know that he ever really got to 50 um, because you can just count on your hands uh, the people in the family that actually have one. He gave everybody in the family um, a copy and inscribed all of them. So I think one of them had sold in an auction about 12 years ago is what I found. Because uh, I started looking for the book thinking, oh, I'll just find it. You know, couldn't find one anywhere. By by the grace of God, Ed Miller um, lives in Austin, and he he gave me this thing on loan. I was going to keep it for a couple of weeks and take some notes and make some copies and all. I kept it for a couple of years. <laughs> so thank you, Ed, if you're listening. Well, be, before, before we get into the Dallas Texans, we have to talk about the origins of the team. They start yeah. off as the Boston Yanks then became the New York Bulldogs, and from there, the New York Yanks. Tell us about the team's existence prior to its move to Dallas. I knew that you were going to want to talk about the uh, the New York connection. Um, <laughs> yeah, they had uh, – they Boston they – they set up originally in Boston. Boston had had an NFL team for five seasons in the early 30s It started. Um, and they started out as the Boston Braves. Uh, their owner was uh, an infamous racist. We all know George Preston Marshall. And he renamed the team the Redskins and eventually moved them to Washington. And they became their own story. Um, but the NFL wanted to put a team in Boston. Um, and um, in their infinite wisdom, uh, they decided to do it right in the middle of World War II, where players were not in surplus. Um but they, they were hell-bent on Boston being a location because they hadn't had one there for a large area. Um, and they found an owner. They found a man named Ted Collins. Um, he was a uh, – he always wanted to own a sports team, and he had the money to fund it. Um, the problem was he wanted to have a team in New York, in New York City, because um, that's where he was from. Um, the NFL had already pre-selected Boston, so, you know, in their – in their persuasion, it's either this or nothing. Um, they decided on Boston uh, that he would settle in Boston. So he called them the Boston Yanks. He wanted to call them the New York Yanks, which he would do a little bit later. Uh, they played five seasons um, in Boston, never went in more than two or three games a year. Um, at the urging, finally, um, of Collins, the league finally let him move to uh, New York City as the AAFC, uh, the rival conference to the NFL, was starting to um, talk about merging with the NFL. Basically, the NFL, you know, they wanted to just they wanted to merge the Cleveland Browns, not the AAFC. But uh, the AAFC did have a team in the New York Football Yankees, and they were um, they were a pretty good team. They had a winning record every year of the, the four years of that league's existence, uh, except for one. Um, so once he once he moved, he named renamed the Boston Yanks the New York Bulldogs because he he wanted to differentiate New York Yanks from the New York Yankees. Um, changed the colors from 
green and yellow to blue and white. Um, and then the following uh, following year, after they played the first year, uh, he he just didn't like the whole Bulldogs thing, so he changed the team's name back to the New York Yanks. Um, and just uh, with the name change, they finally had uh, a winning season. They had a, a they hired a coach that paid dividends, and uh, they finished seven and five in third place. Um, you know, much better than the lowly years that they had in Boston. Um, but by 1951, which was the, the final, the next and final season that they would play in New York, um, the owner, Collins, he got paranoid with his coach and uh, and fired him. He wound up firing the only good coach that he ever had. Um, so um, he, uh, you know, by the end of it, they played three seasons in New York. Um, by the end, they had eight seasons between New York and, and Boston, and he had five coaches in eight seasons. So, um, you know, the final year in New York, they hired a coach and they won one game. They went one at 11. So, um, and that luck would follow them to Dallas. Why, why did Collins, who wanted this franchise so much, why did he give up on it so easily? Two questions, really. I think um reason they, they just didn't succeed in Boston was due largely to performance, you know, uh, on the field. Um, coupled with the fact the country was in the middle of a, a war and most people didn't have time to, to spend on sports and dedicate the money towards it. Um, Boston wasn't really a football town then. I mean, it was it was a baseball town. They had two major league teams. Um New York, the biggest reason they didn't survive is because the Giants were already there. Um, and they had been settled in for, as you know, since the very, very early days. Um, it was their time. It was their town. They got all of the, the the dates they wanted. They got all the times they wanted. Um, you know, and the New York or the, uh, the Yankees and the AAFC, they also had some success there. So um, the Yanks pretty much just got what, the Giants didn't want, um, although they did have the premier playground. They played in Yankee Stadium, which was where um, the Giants always wanted to live. Um, but, yeah, I mean, after 25 years of business, um, NFL franchises finally started to stabilize. Um, yeah. And they'd gone away from the the early days when they were in manufacturing towns, and small towns in Ohio, uh, places like that, started to – you know, thrive more in the major markets like Chicago, New York, Detroit. You know, owning a owning a franchise is, was never really a money making proposition back in those days. I mean, the guy that usually owned it, he he needed to work it. Um, and uh, I think in 1951, all but two NFL franchises had lost money. So I mean, it was it was it was never going to be, you know, something where you're going to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. It's just mainly a, you do it for the love of the game. Mm -hmm. until today <laughs> yeah oh yeah so tell us about gordon clendon giles miller and connell miller who are um, well gordon mcclendon was the um he was the father of of, of uh top 40 radio he had a station called mighty 1190 which was the strongest station down in the south here um, and he kind of started Top 40 Radio, and um, 
in addition to that, he had a uh, a broadcasting system that would take the feeds of games and uh, Major League Baseball games. He would reproduce them down in the Texas market. Now, we didn't have a uh, we didn't have a Major League team at the time uh, in Texas. We didn't have any sports down here. But um, he was somewhat successful with that, and he always wanted to. Uh, McClendon wanted to um, own his own sports team. Um, problem is, he got sideways with Major League Baseball, and by the time that the New York Yanks um, had become available, uh, Burt Bell just couldn't trust him for reasons you'll read about in the book. So McClendon, not being able to purchase the the franchise. Um, he introduced because he still wanted to hopefully get the radio broadcasting rights for their games. He introduced uh, Giles and Connell Miller, uh, which were a couple of friends of his. They were in this, uh, they were lifelong friends, but they were in this thing called the Bonehead Club of Dallas, which was really a uh, a hobby getaway for rich guys to pull pranks and spend money. So that's how Giles kind of came into the picture, really. Now, you mentioned Burt Bell. How does he figure into all of this and getting the team to move from New York? Yeah, Bell was a tough and boisterous football lifer. Um, He he was quoted as saying, and all he ever wanted to do is be a football man. He came from a family of money, but uh, that wasn't really ever, I mean, he didn't live high on the hog. he uh, he was elected commissioner in 1946, uh, but he'd been around the NFL since the, the early days. Um, he was very trusted by all the other owners. Um, he always wanted to grow the league and do the right thing. Uh, he was cautious about new markets, um, and he had seen you know other NFL franchises fail in the first three decades. So um, you know he. Um, he would look at Texas. He never really considered it as an option, um, but he knew that the, the whole region down here was a football hotbed. Um, Bill had more autonomy than I think any commissioner has ever had. Um, hmm. If he wanted something done, it could get done. Um, along with Texas being a football craze state, a lot of the NFL players of the day came from the Southwest Conference. so. Mm-hmm. You know, having football work down in Texas, it was, I mean, it was almost a no-brainer. Uh, you know, at least they thought that. Well, yeah, what was, what was the climate like in Texas for football? For, you know, they hadn't had professional football there yet. Obviously, college football was a pretty hot, hot um, sport. What was the climate like for football in Texas at that time? I'll say they didn't have pro football. They had a team down here that probably had beaten the Texans <laughs> called the SMU Mustangs. Um, the Southwest Conference was huge, uh, as you know, and UT and SMU and all the teams in the conference. Um, this was kind of a, a hotbed area for, for, for football, you know, both on high school and college level. Um Locally, SMU, they recruited heavily, heavily from Dallas, and they had uh, a fellow by the name of Doak Walker in the 1940s. He, get, he got to be so popular, he won the Heisman Trophy, um, that they had to move the games off 
campus at Ombi Stadium to the Cotton Bowl, um, which was probably uh, 15, 15 years old, 10, 15 years old at the time. And because of its popularity, they had to uh, expand the Cotton Bowl. They expanded it twice. Um, and that's why they call it the house, the house that Dope built, just to accommodate the popularity of, um, of Walker and the Mustangs. So naturally, the, with the new stadium, it was kind of a can't-miss thing. So um, even in those days, you know, college football was just so much more popular, especially down here, than it was in some other more established areas, you know, where the league had operated, like Chicago and L.A. and Cleveland. Um, so, I mean, it's, this, was a, this was a big football area, but no one really knew about the pro game because there was never any games played down here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you this. So now we're going to get a team down in Texas. Hmm. How did the sale of the Yanks to the Millers, how did that go down? How much did the Millers have to pay for the team? And what other stipulations did they have to meet? Well, Collins, Ted Collins sold the franchise back to the league. Um, and he sold it back for an even $100,000. Um, the league trying to figure out what to do with it. Bell, um, they wanted to keep the 12th team. They needed an even number of teams. So that was, that was very important. Um, so all Bell wanted to really do, um, is just sell the charter for the money that they got out of it. He wasn't in it to make a profit. Um, so any of the assets and the players and, um, just to recoup the hundred thousand dollars is, is what his goal was. Um, he did disclose to anyone that was going to purchase the team that um, they would need to take on any remaining debt. He didn't really disclose initially what the debt would be, um, but uh, it turned out it was a hundred thousand dollars. And then toward the very final days of the negotiation. Uh, it was disclosed that you have to take on you being the uh, Giles and Connell uh, the eight year remaining eight year lease of Yankee Stadium, which was another two hundred thousand dollars. So overnight, the value of this thing tripled uh, what they thought they were getting, and then uh, what they actually had to pay. So um, that was a lot of money back then. Um, There's just a lot more than just taking on player contracts and supplies and stuff. So um, it was pretty much uh, Giles was called Mr. X from the commissioner, and he kind of kept it close to the vest until um, until they uh, got the sale finalized. And Yeah, I mean, there was – they didn't know what they were getting, and it turned out they didn't get a whole lot. I mean, they buy the team, the trucks show up in Dallas – and they're expecting to open up the back of the trailer, football equipment and what have you. And yeah. Then, and by mid-February, uh, when the league finally released all of the the assets, which were just kind of contained in a in a uh, in a semi, um, there was so much excitement between the brothers, the Miller brothers, and the, the rest of the the board and syndicate people down here. Um, they thought they'd get a truckload of supplies, equipment, players' records, you know, uh, basically have a <clears throat> pre-assembled football team. 
But then they opened the thing and found the truck was mostly empty, uh, but for some file cabinets and, and boxes of contracts. So really unbeknownst to Bell, um, Bert Bell, commissioner, Ted Collins had tried to recoup any amount of money that he could out of the out of the team's assets. So he sold all the equipment and and, uh, and uniforms and anything that wasn't nailed down. Uh, he tried to get his money out of it. So not only you're three hundred thousand dollars down right off the bat, but now you you're not going to get any real tangible assets. Is what the Millers found. <clears throat> um, before we go d- any deeper, what was your motivation behind writing this book and tell us about the uh the name of the book the title um yeah this is one of the most repeated questions that that i had gotten um i think the motivation was really two reasons because no one had ever written about it um and no one really knew about it um the it's funny that there's so many books hundreds of books written on the dallas cowboys but never had been a story devoted to this team and they were the first NFL team. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the title, I kind of got that off of a, uh, you, you know, you'll see, you'll see that in the book where, uh, their coach, Jimmy Fallon, uh, Jimmy Phelan had, uh, had called them wards of the league, um, when they had, uh, had to leave Dallas. And, um, you know, it's it, it's a really good piece. Uh, I found that, that the first time in the uh, in the video clip I was speaking about earlier, um, where they actually finally won a game. And uh, anyways, it, <laughs> words of the league seemed to stick because they were truly words of the league. They they were orphaned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now let's go back to the Texans. The NFL now has a franchise in Dallas. Who did the Texans get to coach the team? And who are some of the players? I mean, this is a team as bad as they were, had five future Hall of Famers on it. And true that. Um, well, Giles Miller, he initially wanted a really big name for the on the field face of the franchise. And um, he had visions of bringing up-and-comer guy named Bear Bryant to Texas to coach the team. Um, there's also talk about Blair, Blair Cherry, um, who had enjoyed tremendous success at the University of Texas. Um, Sammy Ball was, you know, a Hall of Famer uh, with the Redskins, a local TCU product. Um, his name was kind of thrown about, but, you know, the the owner of the Redskins, George Preston Marshall, was never going to let that happen because he was against the Texans uh, and the NFL expanding down south in the first place because he felt that he owned the market um, as Washington was the southernmost team. Mm-hmm. So um, none of these big names that they spoke of or tried to get drum up interest, none of those were to be because, because frankly, none of them had ever heard of this team and um, they didn't want to join a team that they never even heard of and um, probably one that's as bad as they were. So. Patiently standing by on the sidelines was um, their coach, Jimmy Phelan, who um, had coached the final year in New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, he um, he had the distinction. I mean, he had been wondering what his 
future was going to be. Um, I don't know if he even had one with the new franchise, but he, he, he seemed to be the only man in the country who actually wanted a job. <laughs> so by default, Miller quickly just made the decision to retain Phelan as his coach because he knew the most about it. And he wound up convincing him uh, that you've been my guy from the very beginning. So that's kind of how it came up. Uh, there weren't going to be a whole lot of Bill Belichick's um, that wanted to come down and take on what was historically one of the worst franchises um, in NFL history at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, I did say there were five future Hall of Famers on the team, and I'd be remiss if, you know, we didn't spend a couple of minutes talking about George Talaferro who, by the way, I did a podcast about George a few years ago on Sports for Great Guy, yeah. episode 46. And, of course, we also need to talk about Buddy Young. Having these two men on the team was certainly groundbreaking. I mean, groundbreaking for a team in Texas. Tell us about them. Yeah. Especially then, because Texas, uh, Texas and Dallas was still uh, very much Jim Crow era, um, and there there had never been a sports team here before. And if there had been, there would not have been African American players. Uh, Talaferro and Buddy Young they weren't just black players; they were huge talents. Um, and arguably, Talaferro's got the he's got the the resume to be considered as a Hall of Famer himself. He was the actual first African-American player ever drafted by an NFL team. Um, and Buddy Young went on to have great success. He, he held a league office. Uh, he, was, he was employed by the league for decades. And um, those two guys did most of the scoring. But they couldn't, um, back then, they couldn't really be with the team. Uh, they couldn't stay with the team in hotels. They couldn't eat with the team. Um, their uh, their families couldn't set with the team at games. The Cotton Bowl was segregated. You could only set in certain areas. Um, so I mean, they were they were two big big talents. Um, you mentioned the Hall of Famers. Uh, Mike McCormick didn't really get a chance here because he had to uh, do some military time. There was Art Donovan, you know, lovable guy. Um, he he made the Hall of Fame, and he was the defensive tackle here. But I think Corp's biggest talent they had was a guy named Gino Marchetti, mm -hmm. which was, uh, oh, you know, he he's made the NFL 50th anniversary all-time team, 75th all-time team, 100th all-time team. And I think in the when they rank all of the players in history of the game, I think he's in the top 25. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a rookie, um, and he uh, – he hadn't really became Geno yet, but he had a huge size. And, uh, you know, it, if, we, if we had kept the Texans and there had been no Cowboys, then he would have been our Bob Lilly of, of hey. that generation. Mm -hmm. so, you know, um, the, 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 modern, the modern Dallas Cowboy fan will certainly remember one of the biggest trades to ever occur in the NFL. And mm -hmm. it was over the 12th, 1989, when the Cowboys traded Herschel Walker to the Minnesota Vikings, a trade that ultimately also included the then San Diego Chargers and a total of 
18 players and draft picks. There was another big trade with a Dallas franchise long before that. The Texans pulled off a huge trade as well. Tell us about it and the effects that it had on the team. Well, I mean, other than some of the guys we just talked about, you know, Talaferro Young, Marchetti Donovan, this this franchise did not um, inherit a wealth of players. Suffice to say, it was not an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> but it did hold one thing, um, and it was huge. Les Richter. Les Richter was um, a rookie that was uh, drafted just about the couple weeks before the franchise was sold from New York to Dallas. Um, and he was the number two overall pick out of California. He had all of the the boxes were checked off that uh, that anybody would ever look for in a defensive linebacker. Um, but like many, uh, he was called to duty in the during active duty in the Korean War. Um, whether he would serve two, three, four years, that was still up in the air. But one thing was clear: uh, Richter had no interest in uh, in playing for a terrible team, you know, that he knew nothing about. And, and he wanted to stay in California, not move to Texas. So um, the Rams, Los Angeles Rams, at the time they they had been champions, and they they had their eyes on him. They coveted him because he was a local product, and they had connections in their ownership that had also gone to Cal Berkeley. Um, so because they were defending champions, they were just stocked with all kinds of players, like like the Vikings were that time that uh, the, the Cowboys fleeced them on Herschel Walker thing. Um, <laughs> so they had um, they they had made you know any windows back and forth um, with with Giles Miller and, and Jimmy Phelan, our coach, that that they would love to maybe work out a trade. And they had the luxury of waiting on Rick. You know, if, if, if he had to fulfill a military commitment, that was okay with them. Um, so they had um, kind of had a, a list of players like the Vikings did in 89, where you guys can pick anywhere from nine to 11, depend on, depending on who you pick. Um, you can have any of these players if we can get Richter. So, um, so they thought, why not? The, the Texans thought, why not just turn this one guy that doesn't want to play here into eleven? Because, man, that's half of a football team. Uh, you know, you're, either you're starting offense or defense. Um, but this is where the problem occurred. <clears throat> they made the wrong picks. I mean, out of the eleven <laughs> players they selected, only six would actually come down to camp and want to play for them. The other five decided not to sign. So right off the bat, they lost those five. Um, the result at the time, man, you know, they considered it like the Walker trade. It was the first mega trade um, in NFL history. But by by making the wrong selections, six players that made the 1952 squad in, in Dallas, only one of them was still in the league the following season. Um, so with that question, the, the Texans brass uh, drafting Richter was the right selection because you know, he was a Hall of Famer. Um, they just didn't have the forethought to keep him and decided to take the magic beans instead. It just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Much like the same uh, with Minnesota and Dallas in 89. <laughs> okay. The team is set. The trade has happened. We have a team in Dallas. And it's time to put it all together. 
training camp. I'm going to mention a couple of things and just give me a comment about what I mentioned. Parkas, the Texas star, holsters on the uniform. Thank God they didn't go with the, the thought of sewing holster designs on the pants. Um, <laughs> but they did use the star. Uh, most people don't realize that the Cowboys weren't the first to use it. Um, it's the publisher. We're still going through designs and, and final edits and uh, laying out the, the book. But this is this is what the cover tentatively is is looking like. Huh? And the the Texans actually had stars on their parkas. Uh, that's the front. That's proposed back with their offices. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they had uh, they had stars and um, and they they used the same color scheme. Really, the 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 blue and white and kind of an alternative silver on occasions that the Cowboys use. Mm -hmm. Military based teams. Yeah, back in the back in those days, the NFL they had exhibition games, not not they didn't call them preseason games, and the teams would generally schedule their own games just by calling around. You know, you had buddies, you know, like George Hallis would typically, you know, want to set up the same training with uh, with certain teams and in, in exhibition games, and it wasn't unheard of to kind of start out with playing semi-pro or military-based team. So the Texans had had did that, um, did the first two games with military-based teams, and then they were going to fill in back half of the what was then a six-game exhibition season um, with pro teams. So they got off to a great start because they were so they were so much better than these undermanned military teams. Um, but you know, the training camp, uh, that's that's what they that's the way that the league used to run back. So um, they had you to kind of schedule your own games. Yeah, they sort of an overinflated self-worth after after beating those teams. Now here's something else, and it's something that you know a lot of teams still deal with today, but maybe not to the extreme that the Dallas Texans did. Heat. Yeah, if you live down here, there's nothing worse than Texas in the summertime. Um, most or all, all other NFL teams were were further north, um, and they never had to endure the extreme heat that that goes on down here. That doesn't just end when Labor Day hits. Um, so you know, for their training camp, what they did was, you know, most most teams would go north, or they were already north. Um, but the Texans, you know, rather than setting up the training camp base in Oklahoma or Illinois or maybe Colorado or somewhere, um, in their infinite wisdom, they decided to travel as far south as they could without hitting the Mexican border. So they found a small town of 7,000. Uh, the Shriner Institute uh, had a campus there in Kerrville, Texas. And uh, there was Kerrville was prairie land. I mean, there was nothing that, that would grow there except prairie grass and dirt. Uh, and the, the town's inhabitants, most of the 7,000 were either rattlesnakes or ants, fire ants. Yeah, um, the they, uh, yeah they had, uh, that's, that's where, that's where they set up camp. And, and, uh, there's some funny stories in the book that I won't give away about the whole training camp fiasco, but, uh, yeah. 
there were there were rattlesnakes and they had to deal with those all right so yeah there's a funny story about their equipment manager that i won't i won't give but um <laughs> you know the 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 prairie grass is the tall grass that was dead but still there that's where the rattlesnakes lived and when the balls would get in that area they had to deal with it a certain way <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story hey so okay so training camp is over it's time to start the season first up yeah. all, the new york giants in dallas mm -hmm. now the cotton ball as we all know today and you said it's been expanded a couple of times but you know the cotton ball big stadium it must have been standing room only to see the debut of professional football in texas correct standing room only right that's what, what the that's what the ownership thought would happen which is why they didn't really promote the team as heavily as the commissioner wanted them to um cotton ball had 75,000 seats at that time has more now um but uh yeah, they, they only netted about 17500 for that first game. And they were going to play the New York Giants. And the Giants had had some um, Southwest Conference players, Lacal Rowe, and um, a fellow by the name of Tom Landry, who would later play a bigger story in Dallas. Um, and they um, the, the league gave the Texans the, the opener at home against, you know, really good New York Giants team. And they took uh, the opening kickoff was fumbled and by a guy named Tom Landry and they uh, picked it up. Texans scored six to nothing. They missed the extra point. Uh, they weren't always automatic back in those days, but they felt really good about it. And um, that would be the only points that they would score that day. The, uh, the Giants had pretty much handily after that got the bearings and they did whatever, whatever they really wanted to do. Um, it just wasn't a good start for the Texans, but it would be the, the only real lead that they would have for a few months, albeit it was uh, it was three pretty, minutes. It was pretty much downhill. And while it lasted, yeah. Let me ask you, um, I read somewhere that in order for the Texans to have been successful, they would yeah. have needed to average about 25,000 fans a game. What did they average? Uh, you know, I never really did the averages. I, I, I know that 17,500 in the first game was the, the top. They had one game where they had 11,000. They had one game that they had um, 12,000. And one game, I think that they called it 10,000. It was the final game, but that wasn't really verified because uh, they played it in a rainstorm. Um, and, it, you know, 17,500 was the record that they recorded, but I mean, it, it couldn't be that perfect, right? I mean, it had to be something more close to it. So yeah, 25,000 was what Giles Miller and his management team thought. If we just get that many paying people in the seats that we'll be able to, uh, you know, make payroll, pay all the bills, and then uh, we'll be able to take a bounce and make other monies off of concessions and parking and things like that. Commissioner Burt Bell, um, he, he, urge them from the get-go, don't think so low. Uh, you need to be thinking more in terms of 35,000 seats. Mm -hmm. um, keeping in mind at the time, you know, Cleveland, they could put 80,000 people in municipal stadium, and then the Rams had 
crowds of 100,000 at times out in Los Angeles. So, um, yeah, that's that's 25,000 was kind of the benchmark of if we could just get that many. Um, but all told, you ask about the average, it, it's, we probably got half of the average uh, over the games that they played here. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it wasn't good. Mike, let me ask you this, personal opinion. Why in your, you've done all this research, you get, you have the book coming out. Mm. Probably know more about the Dallas Texans than almost anybody. In your opinion, why did professional football miss so badly at that time in Dallas? Because, you know, a decade later, it sort of succeeded with the Cowboys. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I think that I think that part of it was because the area didn't have a history with with the rest of the league. Um, they didn't really have a whole lot of interaction with other NFL teams. Uh, Couple with the fact our team was so bad, uh, people weren't really, um, you know, familiar with pro football like they were college, and um, you know. College football was, was still the big deal down here. Um, you know why didn't why didn't it go here? I, you know, I I did a lot of that thinking when I was reading through Giles's private writing that we talked about earlier in, in his his little book um, that he gave to his family. That uh, maybe maybe the answer will be somewhere in there. I just I just think it was the right place but wrong time. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Um, I know that Connell Miller Jr. had kind of penned that in an article a few years back, um, and it did turn out to be, you know, Dallas was the right place. It just uh, it did not work out at that time because um, it was quite a stretch um, to get this far south when all of the teams are pretty much up in that northeast, midwest area, aside from the, the Los Angeles and San Francisco franchises, which were just a different world. So um, yeah. there just wasn't a whole lot of familiarity. Mm-hmm. So, Well, we know attendance was bad. The team was bad. And after their fourth home game, which was the seventh game of the season, a 27 to six loss to the Rams, the team shut down its operations in Dallas. I mean, they didn't, even really make it a full year as the Dallas Texans. They were still called the Dallas Texans, but that yeah. was, and they relocated in name to Hershey, Pennsylvania, even though they never played a game there, they called Hershey, Pennsylvania home. What led to all this and why did the rest of the NFL owners not support this team and help it to survive? Well, <clears throat> the final game they played at the Cotton Bowl, it uh, it was in a monsoon. It was quite a scene uh, against the Rams. It wasn't completely unheard of in those days when Burt Bell made the schedules. Uh, he made them manually by hand with little index cards. Yeah. We played the Rams uh, in consecutive weeks, so we had the Rams to play in, in Dallas, and it had been raining all week. Um, and we'd gotten drilled in the Coliseum. Um, the week before, so 
uh, franchise was running low on money and uh, and running low on hope. You know, the, the first few games at the Cotton Bowl had just been a complete disaster. So as the widespread rain continued uh, leading up to the kickoff, it just it was pouring. Uh, Burt Bell, the commissioner, he could smell something um, was going down and that they were running out of hope. Um, so he reached out to the Rams management before the game, said, don't leave town without the guaranteed gate receipt, which at that time, you know, they would, you had a guarantee of how much money that the opposing team would take home with them. And then it, once it got above a certain um, threshold of the number of tickets and seats sold, that the profits would be split on those. Um, not that those would happen on this because they couldn't get to the minimum attendance figure. So, um, as the game got closer, um, Giles Miller, he got to the Cotton Bowl drenched and he heard his name on the PA system um, to come to the press box. And he did. And once he got there, he learned that the Rams had revised their demand. Uh, they wanted the, the guaranteed gate before they would take the field or they wouldn't take the field. Wow. Um, so they, the problem was is that with the accounts that they had, the operating accounts, they didn't have the money yet. Um, wow. So Giles and uh, Giles Miller and, and another guy named Harlan Ray, which was one of the, the stockholders, um, they had to reach in their own pockets and, and get the gate receipt and uh, and give it to the Rams before the game would, would be played. Um, why didn't the other owners support it? I, I guess it's just because the Miller brothers, they had no allies uh, that season. Uh other than perhaps Dan Reeves in, in Los Angeles was was friendly with uh, with Giles, um, they were just so far away from the rest of the league's mass. Um, I think that the owners just thought that this was a lost call cause, and uh, why throw good money after bad? Hmm. Um, they were just really trying to crush it instead of trying to help it. You know, today that wouldn't happen. I mean, I think that the NFL did a pretty they did a number on devaluing Dan Snyder's team down, the one we used to call the Redskins. Um, and they kind of wrecked a lot of its value. Uh, that would never, what, what happened to the Texans would never happen today. Um, but, but it did then. Uh, nobody was going to come to help. The city wouldn't come and, and give a bridge loan or anything. Um, problem is, is that by moving them to Hershey, the NFL took them over and all the owners did eventually have to help prop them up and pay pay the bills. Um, they they came to Hershey or were moved to Hershey because it was close to where Burt Bell lived. The league office back then wasn't in New York. It was in Philadelphia. Um, and he could keep an eye on them. Uh, the Hershey facilities there, um, they had been established as a camp training camp site for NFL teams in the past. Um, and it was just, it was somewhere where he could just get them out of Dallas and get them somewhere where he could supervise better. Um, that was his real goal was, you know, let's not change any team names or anything because there's only just a few games left. But, you know, we need to get them the hell out of Dallas. So, mm -hmm. well, you know, they moved to Hershey and um, when they got to Hershey, so to speak, there was a highlight. They actually had a highlight. They won a game 20, yeah. 23 over the Bears in Akron, Ohio, at the Rubber Bowl. But even though it was a highlight and they finally win a game, it was still somewhat embarrassing. They played second fiddle 
to a high school football game. The high school football game happens. There's a big crowd at the rubber bowl. And almost the entire crowd leaves into the Chicago Bears and Hershey Dallas Texans. Tell us about this and why they did play the game at the rubber bowl. You know, and and how, how in the heck did the Texans beat anybody, let alone the Chicago Bears? Well, eventually a blind squirrel will find a nut. And I just think it was their time. Um, the Bears, uh, they were set to play the Bears originally in Dallas uh, the Sunday following the, the rain game against the Rams. Uh, but, of course, no longer being in Dallas and being in Hershey now, um, they had just played the previous week and got drilled in Green Bay 42-14. to 14. Uh, They were traveling back across the Ohio Valley um, toward Hershey, and then uh, Burt Bell sent word to Jimmy Phelan uh, as they were traveling that they were going to stop in Akron and uh, play this game in the Rubber Bowl. And uh, why that? Well, because, and this was on Monday. And, oh, better yet, you're not going to play it on Sunday. You're going to play it on Thursday. It's Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> and uh, that's three days' notice. And um, anyways, like uh, Ohio was, like, like Texas, it was a football hotbed crazed area. Um, uh, they were to play the Akron High School Championship game uh, at the Rubber Bowl, which was fairly new stadium at the time. And uh, hearing about the rumors about a possible sellout, Bill was back then. You, you know, the gate receipts were everything. They weren't. They weren't television rights deals. The radio deals weren't very lucrative. So I thought, you know what, this is can't miss. If we can get Rubber Bowl held like thirty-two thousand people, if we can get some people there. You know, maybe we can uh, make a little bit of money and, and try to relieve some of the effort that the other owners were bleeding out and paying the salaries and and uh, travel expenses. So, yeah, they had the game going, uh, the high school championship game, and good crowd. Um, but then by the time that the, the game started, like 1045 in the morning, they were going to have their game at 230. Um, as the game wore on, the high school game, it started to get a little cold and chilly and drizzly. Um, and, uh, you know, most people just wanted to, to go home and eat turkey and get on with their holiday. So most everyone got up and left. Uh, There's about 2,000 people that stayed um, since the league started tracking attendance. Uh, this is the smallest crowd that was ever recorded for a game with the exception of COVID you know, a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was terrible for them because they thought we're finally going to get a good crowd to watch us and all. And then everybody got up and left. Um, Hallis, George Hallis was still coaching the, the, the bears at that time. He, um, he decided to looking across the way and he sees these guys, Texans players. And he's like a bunch of bums. I mean, we're not, we're not going to, risk any injury to our starters so he he didn't even go with the second or third stringers he gave with any he, got, he went with anybody there that had a uniform so um by doing that the texans were able to take advantage early build a lead and uh then uh Hallis was just he was just infuriated that this was happening so he, he put all of his starters in lo and behold they came back and took the lead over the texans and you know it's going to be like heartbreaking, but in the end, uh, they pulled out a miracle on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, holidays are the time for magic, huh? 
Wow. Incredible. The one team they beat is the Chicago Bears. Hey, the Texans went on to finish that season, their lone season, with a one-win, 11-loss record. They were 1-11. How bad were those final few games for the players that have to even play? And what happened to the Texans? What what happened? Well, you know, after that Thanksgiving miracle, um, they got drilled in Philadelphia and Detroit. Detroit would go on to finish that season and win the championship. Uh, um, I think that at that point, everyone on the on the squad just wanted to get through the season and get home. Uh, those two games were like all the other losses. They were pretty much lost in the first half. And uh, if you look at their score of the games, the the score didn't even it wasn't even that close. Um, they would just once they get drilled in the first half, which was typical in every game, they just lose their enthusiasm and just wind up in misery. Um, I mean, they they kind of disbanded for the season. Um, you'll have to read the you know what happened to some of the players, but um, if you want to get into what what happened to the franchise, uh, Burt Bell thought, well, this time around we're gonna we're gonna keep our eye on things. The Millers did buy all the equipment. They did have some good players. Um, they just didn't have a very good team and. Uh, Bill was ready to get rid of the coach, Coach Jimmy Phelan. Um, so he was he was tasked again um, to try to find a suitor that would take on an NFL franchise. And, and he had a friend of his um, that uh, had a home near his summer home named Carol Rosenblum. Carol Rosenblum did not want to own a team, but um, Bill had convinced him, you know, that you know you should get in the sports business because they, they had been together. Um, at Penn and played uh, football there. So he gave Rosenblum a much better deal than what the Giles and Connell got in Dallas. He didn't really have to come up with as much money uh, and he could pay it out over time. So um, they actually um, formed the team in Baltimore, become the Baltimore Colts. They renamed them the Colts. Colts had had a franchise in the old AAFC when that league was in existence. Um, and because they inherited all the equipment and such, uh, they kept the same blue and white colors that the Texans had still have them today. Uh, as you know, uh, Rosenblum and the Colts, they would, they would thrive in Baltimore and become kind of an iconic brand of, them, of their own until a new owner would move them out in the middle of the night while the city slept. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, they wound up. Just six years after they left Dallas as one of the worst teams in NFL history, they won the NFL championship and what many still call the greatest game ever played against the Giants. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Mike, when when we first connected, you brought up a good point about the Texans' legacy. Had they succeeded, had they survived, football would look a lot different than it does today. Take us through that thought process. Yeah, you know, I want to be careful not to give too much away, but it is pretty obvious. Uh, if you just kind of follow what happened afterwards, um, you know, they went to Baltimore. There would have never been a Baltimore Colts. Um, by not having the Colts, Texans would have stayed. Maybe the Millers would have wound up selling it. 
or they would have gotten some loans or they would have gotten some, somebody would be running the Dallas, Texas. They would still be going on. There would be no need for the Cowboys um, to think that the Dallas Cowboys weren't in existence um, is kind of fathomable, right? Um, and then there's, there's a, another, another little wrinkle that, you know, Lamar Hunt, he, he wanted to form the American Football League uh, because he wanted a team for Dallas and he couldn't get an NFL team. But if you think without him doing that, how many more teams would that have affected? Mm-hmm. And I'll stop there because it's, it's a chapter in itself. Um, but if, if things had just worked out differently, it's like the old Marty McFly thing, you know, don't touch anything or unravel everything. <laughs> now, the leagues, the, the, the landscape of the league would have been much different than what we see today. Sure. Sure. So let's wrap this up. This has been a fascinating discussion. I love it. You know, nobody, when you say the Dallas Texans, most people think of the Kansas City Chiefs when in fact, that's not who this Dallas Texans, this version of the Dallas Texans is. So They're the Indianapolis Colts now, yeah. yeah. So how should the Dallas Texans, the first Dallas Texans, be remembered? What is their legacy? You know, I would like, I would like to, to ultimately be remembered and garner a little bit of respect for the efforts that Giles and Connell put together, trying to do the right thing and, and bring sports to to Texas, um, not just the first football team, the first sports team uh, that they brought here. Sure, it failed. Um, they they couldn't keep it afloat, but but they tried. They shouldn't be criticized for that. Um, they got no help. Um, new expansion teams always struggle. We know that. I mean, the, the Cowboys and the AFL Texans, they struggled. One of them had to wind up leaving town. I think that ultimately that the Cowboys um, probably survived because Lamar Hunt was smart enough to leave and stop losing money. But, you know, because they had the other NFL legends of the of the day, like the Johnny Unitas and the Jim Brown, people were like that, the visiting teams. Um, I don't know. Like I said, it's, it's just the right place, but wrong time. Um, and whether or not anyone wants to acknowledge it, um, all that the Colt franchise wound up ultimately being and has been all started out with one season in Dallas. Um, and, you know, I, I just want people to become aware of the story because um, I, I can't tell you how many people are like, I had no idea. And you mentioned at the top of the, the broadcast here that, uh, you know, even people that know about football, uh, most don't know about this story. So you know, I always like learning something new. And, uh, you know, maybe this will uh, teach uh, football people or just uh, history people something new. Well, Mike, I thank you so much for spending some time with us. The story is fascinating. The Dallas Texans, Ward of the League. Um, I wish you much success with this book. And um, wow, what I would a great- say, uh, look for it in Amazon, Barnes and Noble, different websites. I'll be posting something on Facebook uh, as the the release date gets closer. Right now, it's tentative. It's going to be July ish, uh, so in a few months. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing it. 
it's kind of nice to say I wrote a book and there it is on the shelf and yeah, you know, check that off the bucket list. Yep. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you again. And I wish you the best of luck. Okay. Thanks, Warren. Once again, thanks to Mike for joining us on Sports Forgotten Heroes. And when his book, Wards of the League, the untold story of the first NFL team in Dallas comes out this summer, July, please pick up a copy. You won't be disappointed. Hey, and thanks to all of you for joining me on Sports Forgotten Heroes, and we'll see you next time.